believe we've done this 10 times, Anastasia. 10 whole times. That means we're official. We're official podcast now. I was wondering where you were going with that. Let's stick to the podcast. Stick to the tennis, Nick. Please. Please do. (laughs) But we have, this is the 10th episode of Ground Pass. So it is quite a moment. Um, I think Nick and I have just been doing this. I mean, for the fans, obviously, for the casual fans. And we've gone a casual route, you know, it's, there's been no pressure. We do it once every two weeks. And, but it's really exciting that we've done 10 episodes and I'm proud of us. And, you know, I, I love where the podcast is going and the new um, ideas we come up with. Nick came up with the great idea to do, you know, mini tournament guides for, our local areas where we live and where most of our viewers or listeners are from. And it's been nice to sort of discover these new things and what we can bring to the tennis community. So yeah, we love doing this and we can't wait to do 10 more, right, Nick? Can we do all 10 now? <laughs> Just pre-record all of them. Oh, it could be like the ATP. It's all scripted anyway. With the ATP. <laughs> it's It's all scripted anyway. And, you know, they send us the scripts early and we know what's happening. So we just can record all 10 po- podcasts. If you don't know what we're on about, some you need to check that video out that the ATP did, which is just absolutely genius. I showed it to my my mum and dad uh, the other day. I think it was yesterday, actually. Yeah. Uh, as of time of recording. And they absolutely loved it. It is one of the funniest things ever um if you're a tennis fan maybe if you're a new tennis fan you won't find it quite as funny but um it's it was a stroke of genius by the marketing team the only thing that i'm surprised by it is it wasn't released on april 1st Ooh, that would have been fun but um no the atp is on a roll right now with their new campaigns this year i think the theme of this year for them is this is tennis so they're using that as a hashtag everywhere and they have all these new media campaigns coming out and I'll put an article the athletic wrote a really good article about the new media directors at the ATP and the ones who sort of pitched this video and created it it's a really good read and what I loved about it too is that this whole campaign is not just for the ATP but also for the grand slams so we might be able to get a few WTA players involved as well which would be exciting can you imagine the WTA version of this, it would be hilarious. It would be so, 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 so good. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I mean, let's face it, the, the WTA has enough characters in it anyway that you didn't need to fake it. I know. Like, no one, <laughs> no one could script Yelena Ostapenko. Because they did. She is scripted. <laughs> <laughs> I like, maybe now not. you know, everyone. <laughs> or, uh, or Barbara Kajika for breaking her necklace. That's a bit of a meme in the tennis community. That's another good one. That's another good one. Yeah, there are a lot of moments where if you said a writer wrote this, I would be like, I don't believe you. It's too outlandish. But it happened. One of my favorite clips or or, or things that came out of that clip was they were pitching, um, you know, Roger Federer's return, the CGI version, <laughs> which was hilarious, I thought. Um, but... Yeah, well, I'll post all the links to to the clips below so you can watch them and enjoy and keep tabs on it because I hear there are more videos to come. Oh, I really hope so. I mean, the reason why this is funny, of course, the idea that the ATP is scripted, we kind of alluded to it when we were, we were kind of 
bantering back and forth um, is the reality is, is that tennis produces these amazing real life stories um, that you can get into, um, some of which have had documentaries made about them. Um, and if you're a new fan getting into tennis and you want to know a bit more, there's a lot of documentaries out there, mostly about tennis history. And we'll probably get into those uh, one day eventually. But uh, we thought it'd be good if you were to do like re- do research around your players and really get to know them. Sort of which what's out there that really helps you understand um, the modern players. And there's there's Netflix's Breakpoint, but it is lacking in a lot of place in a lot of, a lot of ways. What there is though is a fantastic documentary that came out around 2020 um, about Andy Murray called Resurfacing. This actually, this idea came to me about discussing this particular documentary. And I, I have a few favorite, the documentary um, um, that was about, that the Tennis Channel produced actually, that was about the rivalry between Nadal and Roger Federer, which is really great. I hope we can break that down and talk about it at some future episode. But the reason I really wanted to talk about resurfacing was actually because recently an article came out that was in the BBC that kind of riled riled up Andy Murray, for one, and a lot of his fan base. And it it was about, I'll link it below, but it was about sort of Andy Murray's current state of play, um, his current level, and how that might affect his future sort of history or his, his um, if, whether or not it would tarnish his reputation um, as a tennis player. And I found it very fascinating. The article is actually a fascinating read. Um, it, it does the, you know, the headline of it is a little bit controversial. And if you want to pick and choose, you know, certain quotes, it could be quite um, scintillating as they say. But um, if you read the whole article, I think the, the journalist does present all of the points, but I thought when I read this article, the first thing I thought about was about resurfacing and this documentary that is available on Amazon Prime. I think it's, yeah, it's available on Amazon Prime, both in the States and in the UK. Um, If it's available anywhere else, I'll leave it in the description. But wanted to talk about resurfacing, what it's about, and how it changed, at least my view of Andy Murray, as someone who was always a fan of his. But after watching this documentary, it was sort of like, I will go to the ends of the earth for Andy Murray. <laughs> when did you watch it? 2020, during the pandemic. Um, it was one of those things that are like, oh, it's on Amazon Prime. I think it was soon after. Do you know, I watched it when I got Amazon Prime the first time when tennis became part of its package. Uh, and I realized yeah. I could watch it all year round and I, uh, my social life ground to a halt, as everyone's did. So... Yeah. Um, I probably watched it around 2020, 2020. It would have, it would have been 2020. No, yeah, 21 probably because uh, of how that all kind of worked out. But yeah, and and it, but it was a, it was a fascinating, yeah, insight into Andy Murray, um, particularly as you know he he is kind of a private guy to be honest. Um, he doesn't like pictures of him and his family being out in the media. 
Um, he doesn't like not unless he's controlling it. Like sometimes he'll put up a picture his daughter's drawn or something on Instagram, um, or something funny his kids said. Uh, but generally, like, there's no pictures of them out there. Um, Kim's not as much in the spotlight compared to other to, to um, sort of other partners in tennis. Um, and obviously, there is also a couple of very specific subjects that Andy never talked about before that documentary. Uh, so yeah. this kind of goes the extra mile in what was quite literally a painful point in Murray's career and. Where Murray is now, um, he is on a losing streak, um, but he still believes he can he can get that back. He can get the level back, um, clearly from the response to the article, which, by the way, there have been other players like Murray who've carried on, like Jim Courier was the first name that came into my head. Um, even John McEnroe, you know, they carried on for years after their prime and it's never tarnished their reputation. Um Jimmy Connors as well, keeping to an American audience here, but and recognisable names. Uh, but Andy Murray, I, regardless of where Andy Murray is now, it's not going to be as low for him as that point in his career that resurfacing covers. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to plug another podcast on here, I listened to the guys on unfiltered tennis and they brought up that exact same thing that you just said where and they didn't even use tennis players they used Mike Tyson who's a boxer and there were some other football players they mentioned as well who played long after their primes you know and did not do well towards the end of their career but in no way sort of tarnished their reputation um, overall Um, But yeah, so resurfacing for anyone who does not know, Andy Murray suffered from um, a hip injury that occurred kind of at the end of the um, 2016. It was starting to become a problem around then. Like he... Yeah. Yeah, so it really became a problem during the 2017 season. So bit of background. Murray had ended 2016 as being world number one. Um, by beating Djokovic in the last match of the year, um, having gone on an insane run of titles towards the end of the year. He won Wimbledon again. Um, and other than a couple of losses, like was only lost twice, two or three times in the entire second half of 2016. Um, but the amount of effort it took was probably a lot. The amount of matches he plays was a lot. Um, and so by the beginning of 2017, he was starting to suffer some surprising losses. He'd still had a showdown with Djokovic in Qatar, which he narrowly lost. Um, he won a title in Dubai um, at a 500. But then from Indian Wells onwards, it was starting to go a little bit wrong. Um, and the pain in his hip was becoming a problem to the point where he had a very, very long match with Stan Wawrinka in the French Open semi-final which actually ended up injuring both of them at the end of it. Um, And uh, that was that intense. And then Wimbledon, Murray hobbled his way to the quarterfinals, but then halfway through his match with Sam Querrey uh, was really unable to really, like he stopped to move halfway through it. Um, And actually if he'd won more efficiently, he'd have got to the semifinals, but the same thing probably would have happened. Um, right, and then that was it. He didn't play for the rest of the year. He had surgery, 
and try to come back almost exactly a year later on the grass courts. And it was very clear he wasn't the same. Yeah, I will never forget, you know, so he had his surgery, and this is before I watched the documentary, but he had his surgery in 20, the first surgery in 2018, which was something a little less invasive. And it was at the Washington Open, I believe, yes, it had to be the DC Open. And he had played a really hard match. It was really, really late. And I remember after he'd won, but he was like crying on court. And I thought, oh, he's really happy because he's back, <laughs> you know, he's he's back and he's emotional. Um, but it was so funny then watching the documentary of that exact same moment and realizing that that was the moment he had seriously started thinking of not playing tennis. Um, I think the thing I love so much about this documentary is Andy was not afraid to be vulnerable. And a lot of the footage of the documentary is obviously of tennis matches and things, but it's stuff that looks like he literally recorded it on his phone. There's even like, I mean, just things that are just a voice note. Exactly. One of them was just like a voice note and of him like in bed at night. And it's like his last thoughts before going to bed. And there was an intimacy to that and him bringing you into his process and his thoughts that, that was really, really touching and really sort of showed me a different Andy Murray. Cause as I think I said in the beginning, like I, I was already a fan of Andy Murray. Um, you know, there was always the big three, you know, Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. And that's who everyone kind of attached to, but Andy Murray was right there with them. I think Andy Murray got to, was it five or six Australian Open finals? Yeah, yeah. So he was he was and is um a member of the big four, as we like to refer to <laughs> refer to all of them as. So um I just saw him as that, but what this documentary sort of introduced to me was this athlete who went through a lot where, you know, I think you hear a lot about oh, this athlete is injured and this person's taking time off because they have a back thing or a foot thing or an ankle thing. And there's a sort of a disconnect or, or um, you can't, you, you don't really know how to engage with information like that, but seeing it through the athlete's eyes and watching them go through that sort of injury was very enlightening and sort of sad to see how, having their body fail them can really affect their sense of their identity and who they are. And then watching him go through that press conference in 2019 in Australia, where he announced that he was going to kind of maybe <laughs> retire from tennis. That's also another thing about this documentary. I don't think he was ever sure he was going to retire. All, all of it was kind of maybe, yes, maybe, possibly could retire, but could be back <laughs> as well. It's like he couldn't let go. He couldn't let go. And it kind of um, gives me hope that whenever it does come, that he does finally retire, he's actually not going to ever leave tennis. I don't think he will. Because uh, I was thinking the same thing, like what you said about that, like he's not quite done. Like he's starting to talk like that again. But then that response to the journalist is kind of him saying, no, no, I'm not, don't tell me when I'm done. Don't tell me when I'm done. I decide when I'm done. 
Um, and I yeah. think he, there's that little thing in him, like, I, I still want to do this. I still want to do this um, in the back of his mind. Um, and I think he's only going to stop when he's told, when he decides that he doesn't want to anymore, when it's not fun or when he physically right. can't know and nothing can fix that. Um, yeah. And that's, that's Andy Murray kind of his grit and determination. That's, that's how he won so many matches is that he just refused to lose. Um, it's what we love about watching his matches because, you know, I think the joke is why can't Andy Murray just win a straight set match, you know, six, two, six, three, six, four. And you're Mm. just like, no, he's always going to go for the sort of four hour, five hour long, five set match, grind it out. And that's part of why, why we love him is that sort of determination and refusal to lose not only on the court, but also just in his life. Because, you know, I think after the first surgery didn't work out and he had chosen to announce he was retiring at the beginning of 2019, he then goes on to have another surgery, which is a lot more invasive, that I, um, one of the Bryan brothers had. I can't remember yeah. which Bryan brother, but one of the you, Bryan you brothers had as well. Yes, exactly. But... um. And it was all in the hopes of coming back on court and playing. And, you know, one of my favorite parts of the documentary is watching, you know, after that big surgery, he was trying to sort of shake up his training a little bit and do something different. And there's all this footage of him doing breakdancing and, you know, gymnastics and cartwheels. And you're thinking, here's someone who is not afraid, which I think is, is something we as humans just innately have is that you don't want to look stupid. You know, you don't want to look silly. And here's someone who is not afraid to look silly or stupid in order to better themselves and give themselves a chance to do what it is they love. Um, so it re- it really did show a different side of Andy to me and of what sort of athlete he is. And when in sort of his response to the journalist um, on Twitter, he said, you know, I'm not like most people. He's not lying. He just really isn't. You know, he he's a different breed of athlete. Yeah, he is the, the ultimate athlete in many respects. Um, yeah, just yeah. carrying on as the, the way that <laughs> he has... Um, and going back to something you said earlier, like, you know, who, you know, he's still going to be connected to tennis. You know, I still firmly believe Andy Murray's going to end up coaching someone one day. Um, I think. Oh, oh, you know, when I knew it for sure, it was at the Wimbledon final when he was watching Alcaraz and Djokovic. And afterwards, I think he was asked, you know, what did you get from watching that match? And do you just want to watch tennis? And his breakdown of the match and the game and, Novak's game and Alcaraz's game. I this I read that. I didn't listen to I didn't even I didn't hear it, but I read his quotes and I thought, oh, he's gonna be coaching someone. Yeah. <laughs> he's gonna be coaching someone 100 percent And can't wait to figure out who it is. And that person's gonna be really, really lucky to have Andy Murray as a coach. There's probably a few current players that we'd like to see, but we want to keep Andy as a player for a little bit longer before we start speculating. Um, oh yes, yes, please. Um, I just want to say, uh, obviously, we've kind of given you the time to sort of 
timeline of events and sort of an idea of what this documentary is like, which you should totally go watch. Um, I think the the sensible thing to do here would be just to put a little bit of a content warning um, about documentary um, for a couple of things. So one, it does go into some medical detail. Um, it's not graphic, but if even if you are slightly bit squeamish, it, is. it might be, yeah. Oh, is it graphic? I maybe I, I totally, I totally forgot because so I've watched the documentary a few times, but there is a scene of Andy watching what the surgery looks like, and I forgot they went into detail and actually showed it. Yeah. So be be aware if you're not comfortable with medical detail, um, be prepared to close your eyes or maybe just listen to it, but um even then like obviously it's it's up to you so that's a little bit of a content warning don't hopefully you enjoy the rest of it but yeah all in all i'm a huge fan of documentaries i watch a lot of documentaries and i have to say resurfing resurfacing is one of my favorite i would give it a 10 out of 10 probably an 11 out of 10 because not only did it tell me about an athlete I already knew about, it gave me new information about him. And I have to say, it was really nice having those sort of personal contributions and personal moments that came straight from Andy's phone, pretty much, um, as part of the documentary. So I, I, I hugely recommend you watch this documentary if you're a fan. You don't even have to be a fan of Andy Murray, but I don't know why you wouldn't be after watching this documentary, you know, but um, if you're a fan of sports and, you know, athletes and seeing that process, this is a great documentary for that. Like they're constantly showing his workouts and what he does and his training. Um, it's a really great sports documentary in general. So highly recommend. Yeah. I think I've still got Prime. I might have to go rewatch it. Yes. Oh, it's so, it, I, I rewatched it last night and it was well, well worth it. So... The Australian Open is long gone, but tennis continues. There's been a lot of tennis over the past two weeks. If you have been paying attention to our social media, we did a little breakdown last week. So um, on social media, we're trying to do little sort of reels, little videos that gives you an update of what happened during the week since we're only with you um, twice a week. But tons of stuff has happened since the Australian Open. Um, what's been going on on the WTA side, Nick? So WTA side uh, has been a combination of indoor events in Europe and outdoor events in Asia and the Middle East. Um, so uh, and a mix of like a couple of 500s, a couple of 250s. So we've had um, 500s in Linz, Austria and Abu Dhabi, uh, which is literally just finished. Um, and then 250s in Hua Hin in Thailand and Cluj in Romania, which is actually happening. The final is actually happening right now. And uh, I think the main thing to take away at the minute is um, if you're watching tennis, um, we've had four WTA 500 events because they love 500 level events on the WTA. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Love them. Um, the, and they've been split between two players. Usually you would expect a different player for each 500 title, but Elena Rabakina and Yelena Ostapenko have split the four between them. Uh, and uh, Ostapenko, both of them very similarly, um, where they had a very sort of tough opening match and that spurred them on to into the form they needed to then take the title. So Ostapenko won in Linz, 
um, having had a tough fight with Clara Towson, who is a Danish player who uh, kind of burst onto the scene as a teenager um, and racked up um, a couple of titles at like 18, 19, um, and then has been injured ever since. So she's trying to work her way back. But Ostapenko, after winning that match, cruised the title. Similarly with Rabakina, she got Danielle Collins in her opening match, and Collins seems to just be spending her her farewell year um, pushing the top players, um, and uh, unfortunately not quite having enough to finish the job. Rabakina gets through it, takes on um, off to win the title, where she beat uh, Daria Kasatkina, who won a bit of an epic in her semi-final against Beatrice Haddad Meyer. Uh, went to a deciding set tiebreak, but it's already being talked about by some people as the the best match of the year so far. Other than that, uh, like minor level, as I said, we don't know what's happened in Cluj yet. Um, Diana Schneider, who is a Russian 19-year-old, um, has just won her first WTA title um, in Thailand. And that was, that was last week. But yeah, that's a quick summary of where we're at but really the the WTA has been kind of in this sort of uh, preparation for the next phase which we'll talk about in a bit and what do you think of Yelena Ostapenko because for me I think the story of maybe since the beginning of the season really you know she didn't really have a great singles run at the Australian Open but she got to the finals of the doubles um but it seems like Yelena, Yelena Ostapenko is having the best, you know, kind of start to a year she's had in, I don't know, forever? A Ever, while? To be honest. She's almost in the top 10. She is. She's, she's, she was in the top 10 before. She made top 10 in 2017 when she won the French Open. Uh, unexpectedly, it has to be said, no one was picking. This is one of those, no one in their right mind would have picked her to win the title. Um, but yeah. she somehow won a title on clay, hitting the ball as hard as she could. But she's very inconsistent as a player, Ostapenko. She's when she's on, she's unbeatable. But the but she is only on for like two or three weeks a year, scattered throughout. Uh, but it's always been enough to keep her ranking up, so she's seeded for slams. Uh, but now she's starting to get a little bit more consistent. And so far this year, she's played four tournaments. She's won two of them. And the other two, she lost the same player, Victoria Azarenka. Yeah. So that's the sign of very consistent player, which if she could rein it in, she's going to be very, very hard to beat by... I, I, I don't know who beats her, to be honest. Like, it's going to be a hard fight for the current top four that are pulling away at the top of the WTA. Um, that's Rabakina, Sviantek, Goff, Sabalenka. You know, that's... She, she's good. At, I mean, like Rebecca's got a good head to head with her, but the others, um, it's a bit more competitive. But yeah, it, yeah. when you have your stage of your career where you are winning, unless you bump into your kryptonite, that's a good sign. Yeah, it's 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 quite interesting to watch. She reminds me a little bit of Bublik on the men's side, who I think also is a super talented player, but is incredibly inconsistent you know he he just won a title so if we go into what was happening on the ATP side last week we had Montpellier which is an ATP 250 event which was won by the four aforementioned Alexander Bublik 
Um, he's someone who, again, runs super, super hot and cold. You know, he's the king of the underarm serve, even though I did not see one from him during this tournament, but who knows, there might've been something sprinkled in. The big thing about this particular tournament run is he lost the first set of every round and went on to win those matches and then the title, which from a player like Bublik, you just do not expect. He's the king of sort of, I think giving up is too harsh a word, but you know, he just sort of, if he, if he's not winning, he can tend to just sort of stop, you know, stop caring. And when you stop caring, you, you, you're not playing as well, but he, he dug in and he lost, you know, the first set of every match and won every match and then the tournament. So again, someone who, if he keeps up this form, if he, decides to dig in and become a little bit more serious can become a very, you know, scary matchup in draws, you know, because it might become a thing where you don't want to see Bublik on, on um, playing you first round of, of any tournament. So that was um, Montpellier. Um, there were a bunch of Davis Cup qualifiers happening as well right after the Australian Open. I think, you know, Canada is back in the Davis Cup draw. Um, who else made it? I think Finland made it. But I think the biggest, biggest news out of Davis Cup qualifiers was Slovakia beating Serbia at home. So they were playing in Serbia and the Serbian team lost and Slovakia is into the Davis Cup. I think they did not have Djokovic playing, but even with that, um, it was it was quite the upset. Yes, that, that was kind of the big story. The other story being uh, Argentina coming from behind to get through, I believe. Like they, um, I think Sebastian Baez had to win it in the tightest possible circumstances for them. But uh, that was the other big story. But yeah, Slovakia beating Serbia, given the lineup, like Ser- even without Djokovic, Serbia has had a really good quality lineup with Dusan Majevic and Mirmir Kecmanovic. So that was super impressive. Yeah, I was. I I think that's the big story f- from there. Uh, but I think this week's ATP action's probably been a bit more interesting because uh, we then after Montpellier they've gone to Marseille and the semi final lineup there was incredible. Like they were all top twenty players with a lot of great pedigree. Right, and we that is a final result that actually just came in <laughs> as we Breaking were recording news. and. Breaking news, Hugo Ambert is the champion at uh, in Marseille. He was playing against Grigor Dimitrov, who, another player, having quite the start to the season. Spoiler alert, Grigor Dimitrov is my player of the fortnight, so I will talk more about him there. Um, so I'll leave it there. But um, some other tournaments also happening um, right now. Cordoba Open, I did not watch a point of this tournament because there is too much tennis sometimes. Um, I only bring it up because it just so happens that the two finalists of the Cordoba Open were both qualifiers into the event, which I thought is kind of nice. It's kind of sweet. You don't see, you know, it's, I like seeing players, you know, I like seeing the growth of players, you know, when you see the players who make it into the um, the top 100 for the first time and all of that. So um, 
They had two qualifiers in the final at Cordoba. Unfortunately, I didn't watch a point of it. I probably won't watch the finals, but if you're interested, that's happening. The big tournament that I've been watching this week has been the Dallas Open, which is local to my time zone. So I was... I was in the correct time zone to watch this tournament and it was stacked with Americans. There were so many, there were so many Americans on Australians in this tournament. That was, it was the Americans, Australians against Adrian Menorino. Yeah. I think Sebi Corder was the only big American who didn't play it. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Where was Sebi? He actually went to Marseille. He went to Marseille. He maybe felt he had a better chance of, of a run. Oh, wait, no. Else. Taylor Fritz didn't play. Taylor Fritz chose not to play any tournaments. Oh, that's true. Taylor, yes, Taylor Fritz didn't play either. He's going to play um, this cu- upcoming week um, in Del Rey. But um, the Dallas Open has been great. You had Francis Tiafo playing, um, Chris Eubanks, Ben Shelton, Tommy Paul, which brings us to the Tommy Paul Ben Shelton rivalry, which Tommy Paul came out on top of in this version of that rivalry. Um, it was a straight set defeat too. I think it was six two six four. Yeah. It was it was one of those matches that I think exposed a little bit of what Ben Shelton has on his own actually said he's working on too. He has a super big serve, but he does need to work on his ground strokes and having more of and working more on his movement on court, which he's doing well. I mean, he's won won tons of matches and tournaments and stuff, but I think in this particular match, Tommy Paul exposed those weaknesses a bit. The final of Dallas Open has not happened yet. It will be happening later this evening, and it will be against Tommy Paul and Marcos Giron, who I am so happy he's back in a final. He was um he got to the Tokyo semifinals last year and it was I mean he was playing phenomenal tennis everyone was kind of like where did he come from he's been around for a while you know he's he's part of a a large group of American players who are in the top 100 of the ATP and he you know he comes in and out of tournaments hadn't had a big run until Tokyo. And I was really hoping that that was the beginning of something. And I'm happy to see he's back in the top four of at the end of a tournament and actually has now made it to the finals. And he beat two top 20 players to get there in this, in this tournament. So it was really nice to see great tournament in Dallas, which is a local tournament here. Um, if you didn't catch it, We are doing these, like I talked in the beginning, we're doing these mini tournament guides on our social media. So I did one for the Dallas Open and we've done one for Delray Beach as well, which is a tournament that is upcoming soon. But before we get into that, Nick, what's coming up on the WTA? WTA. So next two weeks, we are in to the 1000s again. So level below Grand Slam and we are camping out in the Middle East. So we're going to start with Doha, which is in Qatar, um, and that's actually just started today. So the match, they, they've started today. Iga Sviantek is the defending champion. It was a 500 last year. What used to happen was Doha and Dubai, which is next week, used to alternate whether they were a 1,000 or a 500 each year. This year, they are, for the first time, they are both 1,000 events. So the WTA has now got one, an additional 1,000 event, one more than the ATP. 
All the top players are back, apart from Sabalenka, who isn't playing. I don't know why, but she's chosen not to to play this big event. So your top two seeds are Iga Shviontek and Coco Goff. Elena Rabakina is seeded three, and Anja Burr is seeded four. Other than that, with a couple of exceptions, the top players are all back in action. Um, Naomi Saka is playing Caroline Garcia again in round one in again. Doha uh, after their sort of Australian Open. Did you know they have the same birthday? No, I didn't. It came up in her press. So Caroline Garcia and um, Naomi Osaka share a birthday and now they've played again this year. What is this, the third time or the f- second time? Second, yeah, second. Second time, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Osaka's not been having great draws. So she's had, this, is, this is what happened to Leila Fernandez last year. She kept on getting drawn with Caroline Garcia in the round one of every single event they played. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what Osaka can do uh, because I think she's definitely had a few tough draws on this comeback. That's kind of been the main story of round one. Uh, other than that, it's going to be can Eager defend the title in Doha because she's won it the last two years. So this, if she does, it'll be the first title she's won three consecutive years, which would be, you know, to have a stranglehold of a particular location is is always impressive. And then they've got to do the whole thing all over again the following week in Dubai, uh, by which point I think Sabalenka will be playing. It's like... A mini slam spread over two locations. It's like the Canada-Cincinnati double that you get in the summer before the US Open, uh, but just for the women. Um, and, you know, I'm very pleased to say as a Brit, like we've got um, a tennis-specific channel that is launching today and they seem to have chosen these events as the centrepiece of their launch. I'm very, as a WTA fan, very pleased to see that. Uh, but that's where my eyes are going to be all over. And it's quite nice to have the one tournament per week to worry about for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's quite different on the ATP side. There are a lot of tournaments going on. You've got six tournaments in two weeks. Six tournaments in in two two weeks weeks. in two or three different time zones. Yeah, indoor hard, outdoor hard, and clay. Just variety. Variety on the ATP side. But we've got the Rotterdam Open, which sees the return of new Australian Open champion Yannick Sinner. So he's this is his first tournament back after winning um, the Australian Open. There's the Delray Beach Open, which is a 250 event. So if you did not, if you're missing Taylor Fritz, this is his first tournament back after um, the Australian Open. The Argentina Open sees the return of Carlos Alcaraz. That's also a 250. Then the following week, we'll have Rio and Los Cabos. So yeah, there are a lot of tournaments happening on the ATP side. Um, you know, pay attention to our social medias. We have the draws posted on threads and Instagram so you can kind of keep up with who's playing where. Um, I think a lot of times with tennis fans, you just want to go watch who your favorite players are, wherever they are in the world. So I definitely will be watching you know, the Argentina Open and Rotterdam as well this year. So no sleep for me. Is there anyone worth watching at Delray Beach? Because obviously, you know, we have American listeners. Um, I don't know how easy it is it's going to be for people to get to Delray Beach. Probably only if you live on the East Coast. But um, we said Taylor Fritz is playing. He's the defending champion. Yeah. And Francis Tiafo is also playing Um Delray Beach. But the thing about Delray Beach, which unfortunately, it suffers a little bit from being the tournament right after the Dallas Open, a lot of the players who are playing the Dallas Open are also signed up to play um, Delray Beach. So for example, the finalists of 
um, the Dallas Open, Tommy Paul and uh, Marcus Giron are also on on they're in the draw for Delray Beach. There is a possibility they might pull out of that tournament because they have gone so deep um, at Dallas Open. But Adrian Marinarino is also playing Delray Beach and he lives in Florida. So he probably will play that tournament because um, it's close to home. But yeah, we also have Marteo Arnaldi, who's playing in Delray Beach. We have Nino Borges, who is a Portuguese player who did really, really well in Australia. So he's going to be playing Delray Beach as well. But yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see who stays in the draw for Delray Beach. But they're definitely, definitely a couple of players that you you would want to see there. It's a fascinating point in your ATP season because uh, they're going to want to prepare for the Sunshine Double. The WTA don't get an option. The WTA, it's the Middle East or nothing. Um, but yeah. the ATP is in this place where now you've done the Australian Open and there's a big points on offer for the Sunshine Double coming up in March, um, which, again, we will be doing a podcast about. Probably that's going to be episode 12. You know, you've got to decide, are you going to camp out on your, in, how long are you going to do European indoor hard courts? Are you going to go play South American clay? Are you going to go to the Middle East or are you going to go and prepare on North American hard courts? I say North American because there are tournaments in Mexico coming up at the same time as well. That's preparation. So a couple of weeks time to Los Cabos in Mexico, which probably isn't super easy for anyone outside of Mexico to get to. Then Acapulco, uh, which is probably the closest conditions wise to Indian Wells. But even then, they only really play at night. So this is a... A fun. Uh, so this this is an interesting time as a player, and I know if I was an ATP player, I would probably want to go based on it, it. It's a challenge based on who, which is going to give me the right conditions, which is going to keep me in the right time zone, and who is going to give me the right quality of opponent to keep me warmed up and ready for Indian Wells. Yeah, because you think of a player, you know, and you have to consider. It's Indian Wells is a hard court, but it's been known to be a slow hard court. So you take someone like Carlos Alcaraz, who played two clay tournaments, which I think is exactly what he's doing this year as well, where he plays two clay tournaments before Indian Wells and then win, wins Indian Wells. You know, it's um, just because he's playing on a different surface, the conditions might actually be quite similar for him for Indian Wells. And um, yeah, it's an interesting time to see where the players end up. I mean, Sinner is playing indoors in Europe. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he plays just before um, Indian Wells, but it would be interesting to see where where everyone ends up in preparation for the Sunshine Double. So before we leave you, we always do this, players of the fortnight. Nick, do you have a player? Yeah, yeah, do you know what? This one's been really, really hard because there's been a lot of very specific individual performances and there's the the same players haven't really played the same tournaments for two consecutive weeks. So it's hard. So you you have to, I have to pick a run that's impressed me the most um, from uh, the, the, the kind of, from this period. And there's a couple of, you know, you could look at the champions, Rabakina and Ostapenko. You could look at a couple of people who, peaked in uh interesting matches like Towson um but I'm actually going to go with Daria Kasatkina uh who is a top 20 player 
Uh, and the reason why I'm going with Kasek Kina is uh, she got to the Abu Dhabi final and lost to Rabakina. Uh, but she got to the final by winning an absolute epic against the Brazilian Beatrice Haddad Maia, who, if you followed the WTA, has a reputation for playing three-hour matches. She basically will grind and make the points long and physical and basically will not go away. You have to beat her. And Kasakina did. But the other thing that Kasakina did, which is interesting, is she is playing a bigger game where she's going for more winners, going for her shots a bit more. Kasakina has a reputation for being um, a bit more of a, a, a defensive player, a patient player who will just wear opponents down by outlasting them, um, essentially, uh, and an absorbing pace and redirecting it. And what she seems to be doing is trying more to generate her own power. Uh, and I'm very interested to see where the evolution of this game takes her. Um, she is... Obviously, she's been to two 500 finals already. She lost to Ostapenko in Adelaide. She's now lost to Rabakina in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so it's not brought her a great step forward from where she currently is, but it's a, it's a noteworthy moment in her career that she's trying something to take her up a level because she was top 10 at one point in her career um, in 2022, um, made the WTA finals, I think. Yes, she did because she had an epic with Caroline Garcia who ended up winning it. Uh, that year. So that's my player for the fortnight is Daria Kasatkina. What about you, Anastasia? Oh, wait, no, we already know. We already know. I previewed it earlier, but Grigor Dimitrov is my player of the fortnight. For those who don't know, he's a Bulgarian player, fondly known as Baby Fed because he has quite a similar one handed backhand to Roger Federer. Um, he's my player of the fortnight because. I think towards the end, like the beginning of 2023, mid 2023, he had, he wasn't having a great run of form, but he went through a period where he changed coaches. So his coach, funny enough, is now Jamie Delgado, who coached Andy Murray for a very long time. Um, He also changed sponsors. He went from Nike to Lacoste. And ever since then, it's almost like, a light bulb was switched on and he has been playing some of the best tennis that he has since 2017, which was when he won the um, ATP tour finals. Um, And he, this, he started this year with the Brisbane title and getting to now the final of Marseille. And he's just playing really inspired tennis. It's reminding, I think, his fans of why they fell in love with him in the first place. And I think it's a testament to you're not really ever done. You know, I think um, Adrian Manorino, who reached his career high, is proving that to a lot of people where I think he's 34 or 35. And Adrian Manorino... Yeah, has reached his his career high for the first time at 35. Um, I think Grigor Dimitrov, you know, kind of to that sort of mid-2023, I think he might have just stayed static, or at least I think for some people they might have well, like, well, this is just his level till he maybe retires. And he didn't win 
this tournament. But if he had won this tournament, he would have been 35 points from joining the top 10 again, which is incredible at his at the stage of his career. So he's so close to getting there. Um, and if he continues like this, I won't be surprised if he replaces the position of single-handed backhand in the top 10 and takes over a Sitsipas' spot um, in, in, in that role, basically. Because he's, he's, he's playing top 10 tennis at the moment. And it's interesting, actually, you know, we're saying that. I mean, like, obviously, yeah, he is playing top 10 tennis. And I, I agree with you. I could see him making it. It's interesting because I was looking at the live rankings whilst watching Paul versus Shelton yesterday. And the gap between 13th and 14th in the rankings is actually pretty big. And you've got this chasing pack for the top 10 of Alex Diminor, Kasper Ruud and Grigor Dimitrov, who are all trying to get in there and are very, very close to getting there. So I think that would be uh, so I, I think that's going to be the fascinating race for at least the next few weeks to see who's going to make it. I mean, Rude is just about clinging on by his fingernails. Um, but yeah, Dimitrov, the way he's playing and Dimonor, the way he's playing. I think players like Sitsipas, if you mentioned, will will be looking over their shoulders. Taylor Fritz is probably going to be looking over his shoulder as well. Um, I would say I can't think of anyone else in the sort of top eight zone that's going to be too worried. Yeah, no, it's just those two, because I think Sitsipas, not a lot of points to defend, um, but Taylor is is going into a tournament now that he won last year, so definitely has to defend those points, um, I think, to retain his position. But yeah, you know, I think those three players, Rude, Dimitrov, Dimonor, just, they're just there. They're just there waiting for their opening. Um, and I feel like it will come soon for 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 one, if not two of them. Um, but yeah, so that's this week in this podcast, episode 10. It's been really great. Um, I hope you've enjoyed episode 10. We've enjoyed making these podcasts, all 10 of them, and, and can't wait to um, make 10 more and then 10 more after that and then 10 more after that. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you don't like. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us at the moment. We also have a YouTube channel that's just the audio version of the podcast. So you can leave comments there too. I read them from time to time. Um, But yeah, thank you for joining us. Nick, do you want to say anything before we go? Nope. I hope everyone enjoys the tennis these next two weeks. And I'm already looking forward to the next episode mostly because I'm just on a start here. bye everyone bye